Are any of you fans, I know this is kind of a strange question to ask, are any of you fans of church signs? The, the white background, black letters, old traditional church signs. Well, I happen to appreciate church signs. And one of my all-time favorite church signs read this. Uh, Looking for a sign to come to church? Question mark. Here it is. Well, signs happen to play a big role in the Gospel of John. How's that for an introduction? Uh, but one of the most perplexing things we find in the Gospel of John, and when we turn to the other Gospels, is this. Sometimes Jesus performs signs and wonders for people, and other times he flat out refuses. Uh, for example, maybe you think of Jairus in Mark chapter 5. He's the leader of a synagogue, and his daughter is deathly ill. And he travels to find Jesus, and he falls at his feet, begging him to heal his daughter. At which point the story is interrupted by the account of a woman who had been bleeding nonstop for 12 years. And she comes and finds Jesus and manages just to touch the edge of his cloak. At which point she is miraculously healed. At which point Jesus continues and goes to Jairus' house. His daughter, as it turns out, has already died. And Jesus goes into the room and raises her back to life. And the father witnesses the miracle. In a single chapter, he performs two miraculous signs and has compassion both on Jairus and on this woman. But then in Matthew chapter 12, we have a slide for this. Matthew chapter 12, we have this happen. Then some of the scribes and Pharisees answered him saying, Teacher, we wish to see a sign from you. But he answered them, An evil and adulterous generation seeks for a sign, (coughs) but no sign will be given to it except the sign of the prophet Jonah. For just as Jonah was three days and three nights in the belly of the great fish, so the Son of Man will be three days and three nights in the heart of the earth. So my question for you this morning as we open our study is why the different response? Why does Jesus perform signs for some and not for others? Well, we're going to consider that as we look at two signs that Jesus performs in two different contexts with two starkly different reactions. And we'll begin by looking at an editorial comment that John makes at the end of chapter 2 to help us understand both. So let's read chapter 2 together and then we'll dive into the word after praying. Pick up with me in chapter 2, verse 1. On the third day, there was a wedding at Cana in Galilee, and the mother of Jesus was there. Jesus also was invited to the wedding with his disciples. When the wine ran out, the mother of Jesus said to him, They have no wine. And Jesus said to her, Woman, what does this have to do with me? My hour has not yet come. His mother said to the servants, do whatever he tells you. Now, there were six stone water jars there for the Jewish rites of purification, each holding 20 or 30 gallons. Jesus said to the servants, fill the jars with water, and they filled them up to the brim. And he said to them, now draw some out and take it to the master of the feast. So they took it. When the master of the feast tasted the water, now become wine, and did not know where it came from, though the servants who had drawn the water knew, The master of the feast called the bridegroom and said to him, Everyone serves the good wine first, 
And when people have drunk freely, then the poor wine. But you have kept the good wine until now. This, the first of his signs, Jesus did at Cana in Galilee, and manifested his glory, and his disciples believed in him. After this, he went down to Capernaum with his mother and his brothers and his disciples, and they stayed there for a few days. And then we get to our second sign. The Passover of the Jews was at hand, and Jesus went up to Jerusalem. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons, and the money changers sitting there. And making a whip of cords, he drove them all out of the temple with the sheep and oxen. He poured out the coins of the money changers and overturned their tables. And he told those who sold the pigeons, take these things away. Do not make my father's house a house of trade. His disciples remembered that it was written, zeal for your house will consume me. So the Jews said to him, what sign do you show us for doing these things? And Jesus answered them, destroy this temple and in three days I will raise it up. The Jews then said, it has taken 46 years to build this temple and you will raise it up in three days. But he was speaking about the temple of his body. When therefore he was raised from the dead, his disciples remembered what he had said, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had spoken. Now when he was in Jerusalem at the Passover feast, many believed in his name when they saw the signs that he was doing. But Jesus on his part did not entrust himself to them, because he knew all people, and needed no one to bear witness about man, for he himself knew what was in man. Let's pray together. Our Heavenly Father, we ask that you would open our eyes to see your word, open our ears to receive your truth, and open our hearts to rejoice over all that you would give us this morning. Lord, I pray by the power of your spirit, I would preach your truth to your glory and yours alone. Please be with us as we open your word and help us to feast on the riches that you have for all who trust in you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. So our first point this morning will actually be the last three verses of chapter 2, where Jesus provides and John provides an editorial comment on what has gone before. Our first point is Jesus knows the heart. I wonder if, uh, if you've ever thought to yourself something along these lines. Uh, I wish I could have lived in the time of Christ. Or I wish I could take a time machine back to the time of Christ and witness these miracles for myself because they seem so radical, supernatural, out of the ordinary. And if I could have just seen them, then that would have made faith so much easier. If I saw him raise a little girl from the dead, I think I would be convinced. I'm kind of on the fence, but I think that would push me over the edge. Why doesn't Jesus just do this for me now? Why doesn't Jesus just reveal himself to me in the way that I think would be effective? If he did that, then I would believe. Well, let's consider what Jesus is saying here. In response to his sign and signs in Jerusalem during this week-long Passover festival, it says this in verse 23, that many 
believed in his name when they saw or because they saw the signs that he was doing. That seems good, right? They're believing in Jesus. But then strangely here, it tells us that Jesus did not entrust himself to them. Now that word entrust is a bit of wordplay in Greek. It's the same word for believe. They believed in him. He would not believe or entrust to them. Why? Seems like an odd thing for Jesus to do. Well, verse 24 tells us why. It says, because he knew all people. Jesus knew what was inside man in the heart. And Jesus would not entrust himself to them because he knew them better than they knew themselves. And he knew that their faith, which was dependent on miraculous signs, was a spurious faith. You see, the faith that depends upon displays of power does not last. It dissipates over time. It rationalizes away what it saw and ultimately returns to loving that which is not God. Okay, Pastor. Sure. But how could anyone not believe after seeing Jesus raise a girl from the dead or turn water into wine? I'm just not buying it. Well, perhaps you remember the wilderness generation after the Exodus. This was the generation which witnessed God's plagues. This was the generation that saw his defeat of the Egyptian army. It was this same generation that believed in God as they crossed the Red Sea on dry ground, but only a little while later they suddenly could not trust God to enter into the promised land. And before long, this same generation was bowing down to a golden calf. Perhaps you think of Elijah. And all Israel gathered there on Mount Carmel, and he calls down fire from heaven, and all the people recognize that the Lord is God, and they fall on their faces saying, the Lord is God. But do we see some great revival of true religion in the northern kingdom? No. You see, not all faith is created equal. Not all faith is saving faith. We see this in James chapter 2. James says this of the faith, which does not lead to action. He says this, you believe that God is one. You do well. He says, even the demons believe, and they shudder. In other words, James is saying this, that intellectually assenting to God's existence, believing correct things about God, is not the same thing as a trusting, saving faith. His point is that the demons have better theology than any of us do, and it scares them to death, but it is not a saving faith. Or perhaps you recall the story of the rich man and Lazarus in Luke. Lazarus, who is poor in life, dies in faith and returns to his God. The rich man descends to Hades where he's tormented and he, he looks up to Father Abraham and he says, Abraham, please just send Lazarus to dip the, the tip of his finger in water so he can cool my tongue. And Abraham says, it can't be done. And so he says, well, well, please send Lazarus back to my five brothers so they will repent and not end up where I am. And what does Abraham say in response? He says, they have Moses and the prophets. Let them hear them. And he said, no, Father Abraham, but if 
someone goes to them from the dead, then, then they'll repent. And he says to them, if they do not hear Moses and the prophets, neither will they be convinced if someone should rise from the dead. Really? Even if someone rose from the dead and came and showed up calling them to their print, even then they wouldn't repent? That's what God's saying. This is Jesus telling the story. He insists that even miraculous signs do not change the heart. And we see this illustrated even now in chapter 2. These crowds who believe in Jesus in chapter 2, by chapter 18, verse 15, are shouting, crucify him, crucify him to Pontius Pilate. God alone knows the heart. Jesus knows the heart of all who come to him. And he knows that signs and wonders are not good foundations for faith. You see, a faith which is dependent upon irrefutable proof or miraculous signs is a precarious faith. And so that's something to ponder, part of the answer as we ask the question, why does Jesus give signs to some and not others? Let's continue on. We're going to go to the beginning of chapter 2. The first 12 verses for our first sign, the new wine of the kingdom. As we begin, we see a problem is presented. Uh, Jesus and his disciples have been invited to a wedding. His mother is also there. And it's likely that this was a family wedding, somebody they were related to because Mary appears to be helping run the wedding. Now, in these days, weddings were not like our weddings. They lasted an entire week, and they were great feasts of celebration. It actually sounds like a lot of fun to me. But there's a problem at the wedding. The wine is running out. And in these days, it was a big deal to run out of wine at a wedding. There's actually some evidence from the first century that if the groom's family ran out of wine, it actually opened them up to a lawsuit from the bride's family. Interesting cultural thing there. And so Mary comes to Jesus, and she comes to him and says this in verse 3. She says, they have no wine. The implication being, of course, we have no wine. Jesus, do something about it. And interestingly, Jesus here responds with a subtle rebuke. He says this, he says, Woman, what does this have to do with me? It's actually a verse I quote occasionally when my wife asks me to vacuum or fix something. (laughs) Woman. I would not recommend using it. (laughs) But unlike me, Jesus is not trying to get out of doing something. He has an important point to make. He says, my hour has not yet come. And he'll say this a few times over the course of his ministry, but then three years later, in chapter 13 of John, he'll change course and say, my hour has come. What hour is he talking about? It's the hour to fully reveal himself in all of his glory and then to fulfill his role as the suffering Lamb of God on the cross. The more explicit he becomes about it, particularly in Jerusalem, the closer he comes to the cross. 
And today we celebrate Palm Sunday because this was the day that Jesus entered into Jerusalem to shouts of Hosanna, and he fully and openly revealed himself to all of those in Jerusalem, which ultimately led to his death, crucifixion on a cross five days later. So he turns to Mary and he says, my hour has not yet come. I think there's also a sense in which he's saying to his mother, I'm doing things on my heavenly father's timetable now. And no one can come to me demanding a sign, not even friends and family. And so she recognizes what he's saying, and in faith, she leaves the matter in Jesus' hands. And she turns to the servants, and here we have the only recorded words of Mary in John's gospel. And uh, if you catch nothing else, these are great words of advice. She turns to the servants and says, do whatever he says. Uh, I can't think of much better advice for you today than doing whatever Jesus says. So, the problem has been presented. Jesus now is going to provide a solution through a sign in verses 6 to 8. Jesus decides to go ahead and help his mother, but he's going to do it on his own terms. He's now going to use this problem which has presented itself as an opportunity to accomplish a divine purpose. So he calls for the servants and he says, set up those six stone purification jars over there and fill them to the brim. Well, what were these? Well, these were stone jars that they would use to follow Jewish laws and customs. They'd wash their hands or they'd wash the utensils to make them uh, ceremonially clean. So they represent this old way of doing things. And he says, fill them up. So they go and they fill them up. Now, I, I think it's interesting here that Jesus never, you know, goes, or like uses a magic wand or, sorry. Or, he doesn't do anything, right? The next thing he says after filling them up is he says, now draw some and take it to the master of the feast. And so they do. They take this, whatever they drew it with, they take it to the master of the feast. He has no idea where it comes from, and he tastes it. And he calls the groom over, and he says this. He says, everyone serves the good wine first, and when people have had a little too much to drink, then they serve the poor wine when they don't care. But he says, you have kept the good wine until now. So let's be clear what has happened. Jesus has provided an abundance of good wine. Each of those jars holds between 20 and 30 gallons, which means he has provided somewhere between 100 and 150 gallons of really good wine that was at one point water. That's the sign. Who gets to witness the sign? The problem presented, the problem solved through a sign. Who gets to witness the sign? Well, his disciples witness the solution and believe. So who are the three that get to, to see it? Who knows that Jesus has done something miraculous? Probably Mary, who requested the sign, uh, the disciples of Jesus, and the servants. So who are those who witnessed Jesus' miracle? The one who asked Jesus for help, Mary. Those who are already following Jesus in faith, his disciples. And those who are obeying Jesus based off of Mary's testimony. I think that's an important point here. And to them, his disciples, it says this in verse 11. This is the first of his signs that Jesus did in Cana 
in Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. So what do the signs accomplish? They reveal the glory of Christ and they cause greater faith in those who believe in him. So we're getting here at the purpose. They are the way that Jesus reveals his glory and encourages faith. But notice here that the invitation to greater faith comes to those who are in some way already expressing faith. Those who believed in Jesus on account of the signs were already expressing faith in Jesus before the sign. And that's an important point to remember. And so Jesus claims to be the Son of God, the Messiah, and through signs like this, he validates his claims to his disciples. The one who claims to be God is doing God-like things. So let's continue. But before we move on to the second sign, I want to consider the significance, the symbolic importance of this sign. What is Jesus communicating about himself through this miracle? Well, let's consider. Jesus is at a celebration. He's at a wedding feast, which, by the way, is how he describes our future hope in the kingdom of heaven in both Matthew and Luke, and it's how John describes our future hope in Revelation 19 at the marriage supper of the Lamb. And so Jesus asks deliberately for these servants to set up six jars for ceremonial washing. Six jars which represent the old ritualistic way of purifying oneself. And from that, he turns the old way of ritualistic observance into the new wine of the kingdom. And he doesn't just provide a glass. He provides between 100 and 150 gallons of wine. That's a lot of wine. And it's not just a lot. It is good wine. Jesus miraculously provides an abundance of good wine to be enjoyed at a happy wedding feast. Well, what's the significance of wine? Well, drunkenness is rightly viewed as a negative in the scriptures, but wine on the whole is viewed rather positively. And actually, if we survey the prophets at the end of the Old Testament, we find that there are numerous places where they symbolically portray the coming messianic age as an age in which there is an abundance of new wine. They say things like wine dripping from the mountains. And Jesus, in performing the sign, is showing us he is the Messiah who will usher in this age to come. And this age to come is one of abundance and life and celebration. And so those at that happy wedding feast on that day are receiving a foretaste of the kingdom of God right there from the Messiah. And as we prepare to come to Christ's table, we too receive a foretaste of the day when we will sit at his table in person. Well, let's move on to the second sign. Jesus performs, and I think these two signs are intended to be read alongside one another. In the first sign, we saw a problem presented. Jesus provides a solution through a sign, and his disciples witness the sign and believe. In the second case, we add two further points to the outline. His disciples recognize the sign and believe, and yet we find antagonists 
also witness the sign, reject the sign, and, de and demand further signs to validate it. And Jesus responds by promising another sign they will also reject. So let's look at verses 13 to 22. The new temple of God's people. So we have a problem presented. Jesus, sometime later, doesn't tell us how long, he goes up to Jerusalem to celebrate the Passover festival and the festival of unleavened bread. They were right next to each other. And uh, the Passover festival is, of course, the time when the Jews would celebrate the Exodus, uh, when God miraculously rescued them from slavery in Egypt, when they slaughtered a lamb to protect them as the angel of the Lord would pass over them instead of bringing God's judgment. There's all kinds of symbolic importance there. And so even in these days, they would slaughter a lamb, they would offer other sacrifices at the temple, and then during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, they would eat nothing but unleavened bread for seven days. Uh, it was a, a wonderful time of worship, of gratitude to God, of celebration, and of remembrance. Until Jesus shows up. <laughs> In verse 14, we see the problem which is presented. Please read with me. In the temple, he found those who were selling oxen and sheep and pigeons and the money changers sitting there. Now, I'll point out that all of those things were necessary for the Passover. All of those things were necessary for the operation of the temple. But for Jesus, something about this infuriates him. There is a massive problem here that needs to be addressed. And he's going to provide a solution as he performs another sign for God's people. Well, what does he do? Well, it tells us he goes off to the side and he weaves together what the ESV calls a whip made of cords. Uh, the archaic word is a scourge. This was a woven whip which at the end left the cords unwoven and loose. So I want you to put on your thinking caps now and imagine yourself as one of Jesus's disciples. And you walk into the temple with him and all of a sudden he turns red and fumes start to rise from his shoulders. And he takes the scourge and he begins using it on people and animal alike, driving the animals in their cellars out of the temple. He finds the money changers. He literally picks up their jars of coins and drops them on the ground right before he flips over their tables, all their conversion charts, all of their record-keeping and profit-taking, he tosses it on the ground. I'm sure in a very polite manner. And to those who were selling pigeons, he commanded them, get them out of here, because they would have been in cages. And then he gives this reason. He says, literally in the Greek, he says, do not make the house of my father a house of business. Listen, I mentioned that they were providing a necessary function. And there's nothing inherently wrong 
with providing animals and currency exchange. But listen, the temple was the place where the almighty God, the almighty God mediates his presence to a sinful people. And he demands holiness. He demands reverence. They have turned his holy temple, the place dedicated to his glory, into a common marketplace. And of course, when we consider the witness of the other Gospels, we see that this entire temple apparatus had become corrupt from top to bottom. Jesus and Mark comes to the temple and he calls those there a den of robbers. Which a den, of course, is not the place where the robbing happens. It's where those who go out and do robbing come back and it's like their safe house. Jesus is showing that the religious authorities have become corrupt and they are exploiting the Jewish people. And they have defiled God's glory and the temple dedicated to his glory. Now listen, there's nothing wrong with commerce. But the temple and, of course, the church are not places for business. They are places for reverent adoration of the Almighty God. And I could preach an entire sermon on that. Too many American churches forget that. Sometimes I'll talk to people in the business world and praise God for that. But they'll say, I, can, you know, I, know, I get what you do. You know? And some pastors view this way. They view the congregation as consumers. They view the clergy as businessmen offering a product or a service to you consumers. And in doing so, and all of the implications which follow from that, they have entirely missed the point of the gathered, gathering of the saints. That we are gathered together to glorify, worship, adore, experience the Almighty God. Let me ask you something else. This isn't everything about Jesus, but it is part of who Jesus is. When you think about Jesus, do you ever think of this episode? The Son of God using a whip to angrily drive people out of the temple. I don't think this side of Jesus is going to show up on a He Gets Us ad. I don't think you're going to see this on a Bible TV show. And that's because when modern Christians see Jesus act like this, we almost get embarrassed for him. Jesus, what are you doing? It's not very nice, Jesus. It's not very loving, Jesus. You're using a whip. How can I reconcile this portrayal of Jesus with a God who I know is love? Brothers and sisters, righteous anger is the loving response against injustice. Fathers, if someone ever tries to hurt your child, I hope you get angry and step in. And if you don't, I'm not sure you love your child. Jesus here, in his anger, is directly tied to his love. He's motivated by love. Love for the glory of the Father and love for his beloved people, the sheep of his pasture. And every angry lash of Christ's whip is an expression of divine love for his own glory and his beloved people. And I want you to notice here in the text that in verse 17, Jesus' disciples are not embarrassed by this God of love. No, they see this sign. 
And they remember Psalm 69, written by the warrior king David, when he prophetically wrote, zeal for your house will consume me. And they look to this son of David, and they say, this is the Messiah we've been looking for. This is the one who does not tolerate injustice. This is the one who purifies the temple worship. I've had some time to think about this, but I wonder, maybe the reason so many American churches can't get any men in their doors is because they get embarrassed when Jesus exhibits masculine characteristics. Or like the Jesus of popular imagination, they just pretend things like this never happened. But here we see the holy, perfect, sinless Son of God using a scourge to forcefully remove people from the temple for defiling his Father's glory. The church needs godly women. And the church needs godly men. The two are not the same thing. And they're both beautiful, incredible things that God has given us. Let's define those things biblically and not under cultural pressure. Now, one more application before we move on. We live in an area where corruption in disregard for God's glory has almost killed the church here in New England. Maybe some of you here today, maybe some of you listening online have been adversely affected by this corruption. My clergy scandals or business-like practices of churches that have lost their way. If this is you, then I hope you will take comfort in this episode in knowing that God does not tolerate injustice, especially when carried out in his name by pastors and priests. Consider the character of Christ toward injustice and let that be a comfort for you knowing that God sees all and judges all. So Jesus performs this sign, the condemnation of the temple. And I mentioned already, Jesus' disciples see in this sign an opportunity for deeper faith and understanding about Jesus. They see Jesus perform the sign, they're already believing in him, and they make the connection back to Psalm 69, and they say, this is who David was writing about. But we see a second reaction, and that's in verse 18. Please read that with me. Verse 18. So the Jews said to him, I think these are the Jewish leaders, what sign do you show us for doing these things? In other words, they're asking Jesus, after performing this sign, to perform another sign to authorize his actions. Rather than celebrating the return of true and reverent worship to the temple, they're upset because he was doing what they were supposed to be doing. And the reality is, they just witnessed the fulfillment of Malachi 3, verses 1 to 4. I mentioned it with regard to John the Baptist. I will send my messenger before you. He will prepare your way. But then what does it say? It says, the Lord himself will return to his temple. 
And it goes on to describe that when the Lord returns to his temple, it's not going to be a happy time for those in the temple. He will come with a refiner's fire and fuller's soap, and he will purify the worship and make it acceptable to God. And so they come to him angry about that. They demand a sign. But what does Jesus do? He responds by refusing to perform another sign, but rather... He answers indirectly in verse 19. He says, destroy this temple, and in three days I will raise it up. Of course, they take him literally. They're saying, well, this kind of took a while to build. I don't know if you're aware of that. It took 46 years. You're going to rebuild it, you know, in three days, Jesus? It seems unlikely. Of course, both the Jews and his disciples totally misunderstand him and his disciples don't even realize it until after he is resurrected he says destroy this temple and i will raise it again in three days but he's talking about the temple of his body and here we see another replacement theme coming in and the significance so let's consider the significance of this sign In the first sign, we saw that Jesus, the Messiah, will bring about a celebratory age characterized as a wedding feast with abundant wine. Jesus himself replaced the old system of ritual purification and replaced it with something new and far better. In the second sign, Jesus is presenting himself as the new and the better temple. He says, my body is the new temple. Well, how is it new and how is it better? Let's think about the old temple for a second. This was the place where God dwelt. This was the place that he mediated his presence among his people. And this was the place where sinful humanity could come in faith and the priests would mediate to God for them. Thus at the temple, God's people could come in faith and they could be made holy, righteous, and clean before God. The temple was where they were cleansed of their sins and where they worshipped and experienced God. Well, Jesus is the new and the better temple. And all who look to him, the same faith that those who believed in the Old Testament are cleansed from guilt and corruption. And he mediates the presence of God to his people. Jesus is a better temple Because he is also the sacrifice that takes away our sins. And he is also the great high priest who, by his blood, makes constant atonement for the sins of his people. And Jesus is the better temple because he's not restricted to one place in Jerusalem. He says to the woman at the well, there's coming a day when people will worship all over the place in spirit and in truth. And he's the better temple because he dwells in the midst of his people by his Holy Spirit. And this is such an incredible thing to say because it means that the Christ who brought divine justice against religious corruption in the form of a scourge was also himself scourged by men and placed on a cross where he was punished by the Father who he lived to zealously uphold his glory. And on the cross, he bore punishment for the sins of people like us who could not save themselves. (laughs) As we take communion, 
after the sermon, we will commemorate his sacrificial death as we look forward to next week on Easter when we celebrate his resurrection from the dead and our own justification by faith. Well, we'll close with an application. As we close our study on these first two signs in John's Gospel, I think we have a similar application as there was on that day. His signs are there to help us find greater and deeper faith in the Son of God. My hope is that if you already believe in Jesus, you will use this as an opportunity to grow in a true and lasting faith. Uh, Let these signs be an opportunity for you to contemplate the glory of Christ, to celebrate who he is at a deeper level as you consider both the Old Testament and the New Testament as they explain the significance of the Messiah and as you just enjoy his glory in that, as you prepare your heart to sing his praises. And with Jesus' disciples, let these signs be an opportunity for you who already have faith, to deepen and grow your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. But maybe you're here this morning and you're not yet sure about this guy, Jesus. I'm happy you're here. I'd like to offer a humble recommendation for the pursuit of faith And I'd like to do that by answering fully the question which we began with today. Why did Jesus perform signs for some and not for others? When we discussed that Jesus knew what was in man, upon the sign of his temple cleansing, his disciples stood amazed and and believed. And yet the religious leaders who saw the same sign rejected him and demanded more validation. And Jesus knew the hearts of both beforehand. Jesus knows the heart. But the heart of man also reveals itself in the posture that one takes toward the Almighty God. So if you're here and you think that there is even a chance that what Jesus claims about himself is true, even if you're not convinced yet, let me please beg you not to approach him in the manner in which the Pharisees and religious leaders of that day approached him. Please do not approach him demanding verification or proof. If he really is who he says he is, then you have no right to approach God in that manner. This is the attitude of the Jewish leaders he spurned and for whom he refused to perform signs. But consider the posture of those who came to Jesus and did receive signs. Jairus, from Mark chapter 5, the prominent synagogue leader, a prominent successful man of his day, falls at Jesus' feet in faith, even if it's just the faith of a colonel. And he falls and asks Jesus to save his daughter. And he witnessed her resurrection. The hemorrhaging woman didn't have some great theology. She just sees Jesus. She's heard something about him. And she thinks, if I can just touch his cloak, I'll be healed. And she does. And he turns around and he says, who touched me? And she falls down and and confesses. He looks at her. 
And he says, go in peace. Your faith has made you well. I think what these entire chapter is trying to show us is this. If you wait for enough evidence, irrefutable proof, or a spectacular display of supernatural power, even if you receive it, like the scribes and Pharisees of his day, you will never come to Christ. Those who demand signs and validation never see enough to warrant faith. But those who approach Christ in faith, even a small faith, are those to whom he reveals his glory. There's an ancient tradition within the church which describes this exact thing. It's called faith seeking understanding. Anselm of Canterbury was an 11th century monk and theologian. And he captured this ideal well in a prayer which he used to serve as an introduction to his proslogion. This proslogion was uh, and still is one of the most influential arguments for the existence of God. It is still debated today by philosophers. But he wrote this prayer as an introduction and I'd like to offer his prayer as a helpful example of the pursuit of faith in Jesus. Now, this is an excerpt, and I've cut a whole lot out. I'm happy to send you the whole thing, but I I just think it's a very helpful prayer for all of us to take for ourselves. He says this, Come now, Lord my God. Teach my heart where and how to seek you, where and how to find you. I came as one who is poor to one who is rich, as one who is unhappy to one who is merciful. Let me not return empty and spurned. O Lord, bent over as I am, I can only look downwards. Straighten me so I can look upwards. Having mounted above my head, my iniquities cover me over. As a heavy burden, they weigh me down. Deliver me from them. Unburden me so that the abyss of iniquities does not engulf me. Permit me to look up to your light. Teach me to seek you and reveal yourself to me as I seek. For unless you teach me, I cannot seek you. And unless you reveal yourself, I cannot find you. Let me seek you in desiring you. Let me desire you in seeking you. Let me find you in loving you. And let me love you in finding you. O Lord, I acknowledge and give thanks that you created me in your image so I may remember contemplate and love you. But this image has been so effaced by the abrasion of transgressions, so hidden from sight by the dark billows of sins that unless you renew and fashion it, it cannot do what it was created to do. O Lord, I do not attempt to gain access to your loftiness because I do not at all consider my intellect to be equal to this task. And he had a lofty intellect. But I yearn to understand just some measure of your truth which my heart believes and love. And here's the important part. He says, For I do not seek to understand in order to believe, but I believe in order to understand. 
For I believe even this, that unless I believe, I shall not understand. As Jesus demonstrated, a faith seeking understanding usually finds it. Requiring understanding before faith is a fatal flaw. Let's pray.